Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, this is Joe Castellano from thesportsvirus.com. Welcome to the Inside China Basin San Francisco Giants baseball podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, featuring players like all-star catcher Buster Posey. It's about, you know, just going out and, and trying to have passion for the game that I've loved since I was a kid. Inside China Basin is brought to you by Sun First Solar, known for delivering solar excellence since 1984 and recently voted best solar company in Marin County. We're also brought to you by TPC Harding Park, the only public golf course in San Francisco, offering golfers the opportunity to play where the pros play. Coming up, we're going to talk to one of the great directors in television sports history, Bob Fishman, who has had an illustrious career with CBS Sports, will be joining us. But first, I want to tell you about my favorite golf course, TPC Harding Park in San Francisco. TPC Harding Park is now open and accepting tee times at tpc.com slash Harding Park. And TPC Harding Park is also pleased to announce the 2020 PGA Championship has been rescheduled for August the 3rd through the 9th. For additional information, visit tpc.com slash Harding Park or feel free to contact 102PGA at pgahq.com. From time to time here on Inside China Basin, we venture away from the Giants and talk about other teams. Last week, we talked to Jerry Hairston Jr., a former Dodger, and we're sort of continuing on the Dodger trend here for two weeks in a row. And trust me, we won't be focusing on the Dodgers probably for a while after this. But our guest is very special, a big Dodgers fan, and he has had an illustrious career with CBS Sports. He's covered 37 NCAA Final Fours, 27 U.S. Open Tennis Championships, 20 Daytona 500s. He's also directed three Olympic Winter Games, the NFL, the NBA playoffs, college football, triple crown horse races, you name it, and two World Series. And baseball is the focus of our conversation, as I had a chance to chat with the great Bob Fishman, a member of of the Sports Broadcasting Hall of Fame inducted last year. Here was the conversation that we had on Sunday. Well, Bob, uh, I detailed all of the events that you've worked in your career, and it's really remarkable. But I know the sport that is near and dear to your heart is baseball, and you have to be going crazy right now uh, knowing what's happening with Major League Baseball. Uh, you know, We know that if baseball could come to an agreement – they would have off-the-charts TV ratings in July, but they've got this issue right now that actually ESPN's Buster Olney compared it as a sports dysfunction to the Knicks, Tanya Harding, and the butt fumble. What do you think of that? <laughs> I'll tell you, I am so not engaged with baseball right now because of the back and forth that I am concentrating on German Bundesliga soccer, if you can believe that. <laughs> I am, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very sad. I'm, I've always been a baseball fan, as you know. You a Giant fan and me a Dodger fan. I'm sorry, listeners. It's just the way it is. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, but I, I've been a baseball fan since the time I was, uh, well, my parents were uh, still in Brooklyn. I had not yet moved to my hometown in the Virgin Islands. And uh, even moving there when I was two years old, by the time I was like five or six, 
um, baseball was the sport in the Virgin Islands. I mean, we, uh, in fact, one time there were more major leaguers from the uh, Virgin Islands per capita than any place, I think, in the world. This is before they discovered all these great players from the Dominican Republic. So, yeah, I grew up on baseball, you know, played Little League down there and um, played in school. wasn't good enough to go beyond that to, uh, to college. But um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big baseball fan, and I miss it dearly. I read that you grew up listening to the Dodgers on a shortwave radio. That must have been something. That's true. Um, about uh, 4 a.m., the uh, Dodger games would be rebroadcast from uh, Armed Forces Radio in Delano, California. So I would uh, get up before school, uh, you know, during the early part of the season, and then the, the uh, later part of the season when school was back in session, and I would actually get up early and listen to the rebroadcast of, of Dodger games, which is when I became, you know, just a huge Vin Scully fan and, you know, obviously uh, a Sandy Koufax fan. And uh, my parents were both from Brooklyn, so when I moved to the Caribbean at a very young age, it didn't really matter to me that they uh, had moved to L.A. because... You know, I wasn't living in Brooklyn, so I didn't have that attachment to, oh, my God, how could they do this? And, you know, deciding, well, I'm not going to be a fan anymore. I hate them. <laughs> it wasn't like that at all. I was still 3,000 miles away from either place. So my only connection um, was through, you know, Armed Forces Radio early, early in the morning. Or if uh, NBC was bringing in the game of the week and it happened to be a Dodger game from a station in uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, um, I could get to see them, actually. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was radio for me. Yeah, we'll talk about Scully a little bit later and sure. uh, Sandy Koufax as well. But the thing about the Dodgers that was great as a fan is that they had kept their players together. I mean, you think about that infield that they had for so many years with, say, Russell, Lopes, and Garvey. I mean, that's just years and years mm-hmm. of togetherness, uh, which leads to a lot of continuity. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, there were different people, at, uh, different players that, uh, in, in different years that I listened to all those games early in the morning. Of course, a lot of those games um, I've forgotten. It's been so, so long ago. But um, my favorite memory uh, was actually the Dodgers were playing um, Milwaukee, um, and uh, they they were losing by seven runs in the ninth inning. And I remember the Dodgers coming back and winning that game 8-7, to seven, scoring seven <laughs> runs in the ninth. <laughs> Those are the games I remember more than anything. <laughs> uh, you know, the, I don't think there was really a reason to hate the Giants for a while until they started winning World Series in 2010, 12, and 14. So how did you feel about it, uh, seeing that the Giants were doing it? Or was there a part of you that said, you know, at least, at least it's a team from the National League, or at least it's a team from our division? Yeah, I was I was more about that. I didn't ever hate them. Let's get that straight. Um, <laughs> and I know I'm talking to a San Francisco audience mainly. Um, I never hated them. And when, in fact, uh, they would be the representative, I was a National League guy. And I hated the Yankees more than anybody. So yeah, I, it was okay. I, I would become a Giant fan for a, a short part of the, of the year. We'll have more with CBS Sports Director Bob Fishman right after this. Jones goes back, back near the wall, shading the sun, and he dropped it. He lost the ball in the sun. Let's put the sun to good use at home. 
with a SunPower residential solar system. Your SunPower elite dealer, SunFirst Solar, has a wide range of financing options, and they provide the finest customer service from start to finish, regardless of size or scope. SunFirst Solar offers the highest efficiency systems, newest technology, and the best warranty in the world. SunFirst Solar offers the most competitive price, while not compromising on quality. This summer, let the sun heat your pool and eliminate your energy bill. Don't drop the ball. Call SunFirst Solar at 415-458-5870. That's 415-458-5870. And get your Sun Power solar system today. All right, let's talk about Vince Scully. There was a great show recently on MLB Network where they had all of his best calls. And here's my favorite call, Vince Scully, 1986 World Series. Behind the bag, it gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. If one picture is worth a thousand words, you have seen about a million words. But more than that, you have seen an absolutely bizarre finish to Game Six of the 1986 World Series. The Mets are not only alive; they are well, and they will. Sox in Game 7 tomorrow. All right, Bob, that call, the reason I love that call, maybe because it's not a Dodgers game, but but also because he knows how to capture the moment there, like in so many of the great calls. He actually laid out a long time. I edited that so you don't hear the, the long layout with the crowd playing, and then he summarizes it perfectly. That's what Scully did so well. I mean, I would think that might be one of your favorite calls. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite calls, but also I didn't love the call because of uh, going to school in uh, in Boston um, and being a uh, also a Mets hater in that uh, in that World Series. <laughs> I was rooting for Boston, so uh, that was painful. Um, I think that my favorite call, though, all through the years, if that's what you're asking me, yes. <laughs> was probably the uh, Gibson home run. All right, we're gonna play that. Listen to the Gibson home run call. Yeah, that was amazing. The way yep. he built the drama for it beforehand, and then the way he caps it off again. Yeah, the, the, he, there was nobody better at building the drama and then laying out. And, you know, this reminds me, his ability to understand, um, you know, when you're doing television specifically, uh, to, you know, don't ruin the moment. It, it's it's That's something that we all learned uh, at, uh, at CBS from uh, the late, great, producer Frank Trichinian, who was the uh, the guru of golf coverage. And I remember Frank telling um, a lot of us, and especially a lot of the announcers, this is television. You know, I will close your mic if you don't have the ability to not say anything and let the pictures, let my pictures, which he would say, <laughs> you know, paint the, paint, paint the scene. So Scully was a master at that. And, uh, you know, I think the Gibson thing, and because of what you said, the lead up to it, and then that layout, and that and that she's gone, and the whole thing was, and the you know, and the, and the the improbable, impossible line, you know, <laughs> nothing was better than that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that would be that would be my my uh, my favorite. 
Yeah, I mean, there was a, a buildup to that because Gibson wasn't even in the dugout. I well, mean, yeah. there's no way he was going to play, and Scully kept mentioning that. I mean, as a fan, when you were watching that, I'm curious how you watched it because you're rooting so hard for the Dodgers and then to witness that moment. Wow. We, I was doing – it was a football weekend, and I don't remember exactly where I was, but I do remember we were watching together in, in one of our meeting rooms in whatever hotel we were in, and uh, I watched a good good part of it. I didn't see the entire game, but certainly watched the last uh, two or three innings. And, yes, of course, you know, Scully earlier on the broadcast had said something about it was, you know, unlikely that Gibson was ever going to play, and, you know, he's not even in the dugout and all that stuff. So that even made it extra special. So, yeah, yeah for sure. That was edited, too. There was a long layout after he called the home run, and that's where the director really comes into play. And I wanted to ask you about directing Joe Carter's walk-off home run to win the World Series for Toronto. That was a great baseball moment for you as a director. What did you learn from that as far as uh, directing it? Uh, Do you remember exactly what was going through your mind? Uh, well, you know, we had a we had a short four year stint at baseball, and uh, I was uh, I was a novice when we started. In fact, we did some practice games uh, in the uh, in the fall of '89 to get ready for the season. And um, I think uh, we were in Seattle. Uh, the Mariners had allowed us to uh, cover some of their games, so we could get experience doing baseball. Uh, Joe Assetti, the uh, the late director at CBS, one of my my dear friends who passed away, had done baseball. He went out and uh, he taught me a lot um, about you know things that are important to cover in baseball. And with my instincts of capturing everything that's going on, I was kind of prepared for that moment. Um, I think the important things with any sport, not not just baseball, is to, to cover the moment and then to understand that reaction shots are what it's all about before you even get to the replays. So, you know, the, the reaction of the pitcher, you know, dropping his head in despair, the reaction of the dugout, the reaction of, of Carter running the bases with his hand up in the air, uh, the team coming out to mob him, making sure that you, you know, cut back and forth, showing him rounding the bases, cutting to the crowd, um, because it was in Toronto, it was it was crazy. So uh, yeah, all of those things makes up for a a perfect scenario of reaction shots, which I think the viewers want to see. Uh, and um, and then you eventually get to your replays. So I, I've learned that throughout my entire career, whether it's basketball, football, and and certainly baseball, that it really doesn't change. It's it's all about the uh, juxtaposition of winners, losers. Um, exhilaration, and then the star of the moment. One thing that is different about baseball, Bob, is that uh, there's that ebb and flow to it that I don't think the other sports have. For example, I mean, you could have a pitcher throwing the first base four times in a row, and you're about to fall asleep, and then all of a sudden there's a triple with the bases loaded and all heck breaks loose, and you've got to direct it. Uh, did you have to make an adjustment for that? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was the craziest thing um, about these practice games we did. We did some in Seattle, and we had, did some in New York. So I remember uh, one of the Seattle games, uh, Joe had done the first three innings, and then we switched chairs, and I got in there. And um, so the first batter is a strikeout. Okay, easy. Next batter, ground out to short, easy. <laughs> and then all hell breaks loose, as you said. A double <laughs> up the gap, a base hit, run scores, pass ball, deep fly to right field off the wall, runner, runners rounding the bases. And then 
didn't become so easy all of a sudden. And uh, it, it can lull you to sleep, but you but that that experience taught me well you never never know, and you better have a a, a really fast and a, a good guy sitting next to you as the technical director, because sometimes like let's talk about a pickoff for example. Okay, so there's a man on first base, and the pitcher is looking over there, and there are probably three different cameras that can capture that. One is high third, shooting across the diamond. One is low first, shooting a more uh, intimate shot. And then there's high first, shooting a little wider. And you don't have time to say, take this, because by the time you say, take this, whatever camera it is, it's too late. You've missed the throw. So basically, you have to trust the guy sitting next to you, uh, who's going to you, you got to let him do it. So you could say something like, in, in the in the uh, the way I would say it is, uh, I would uh, alert him: runner on first, nobody out, uh, one or eight, one or eight, and he would instinctively cut to one or eight, depending on you know um, which camera was covering it. So that's a, a, a different way that I used to do it. I used to give my tech, technical director, and, and for those of uh, the, your audience out there, the technical director is the person um, who actually punches the buttons. So a director can say, ready, and then when their director says, take, that's when the technical director pushes the corresponding button to that particular camera. And that's how that all all works. But you have to have a great relationship with your technical director because those pickoffs in 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 the middle of a of a sequence can kill you if uh, if you um, take the time to explain which camera you want because it's too late at that point. You know, it's interesting the relationships like you talked about. It's sort of like in baseball where you really have to trust your teammates. If you're a shortstop and you have a great first baseman, you can just throw it over there. You know he's going to grab it. Or if you're a pitcher, you can trust what your catcher's putting down for the sign. And, you know, you're mentioning that with the technical director. And I would think it would be like that for a lot of the positions. I mean, you work so many years with one of the great producers in sports, Mark Wolf, and you've got a lot of uh, camera folks and graphics people and audio and tape and all those type of people that you uh, have these relationships with, and the trust factor must be huge. Oh, it, it, it is huge, and, and for baseball, I work with uh, a dear friend and a terrific baseball producer, and Bob Dekas, who I did a million Final Fours with, and, and, and Bob left, uh, and now Mark I work with on basketball and football, um, but in baseball, you know the trust factor. Also, the, the your your AD, your associate director, who is alerting you what the count is on every pitch, how many outs there are. So in your head, you know, okay, if there's two outs and there's a man on second, and there's a base hit. You don't have to worry about that runner on second base um, as much, unless there's an error. Um, as opposed to bases loaded, who's got the lead runner, who's got the trail runner, and so every sequence with runners on becomes more difficult because we all have a pattern and you just have to remember what that pattern is. I will say this, um, well, two things I want to say. The the gentleman who helped me more than anybody was the late Harry Coyle, who basically showed all of us young guys how to do it. Harry passed away, but before he did, uh, Harry invited me over to his house in New Jersey. and I sat in his living room with him for six or seven hours, and he explained to me every possible situation where you can get in trouble in baseball. Now, understanding, Harry was an NBC director 
helping a young director at CBS, a rival network. That was astonishing, and I've always, I always give credit to Harry for teaching me that, if, that, that this was actually before I even started working with uh, with Joe. Um, the the other thing I wanted to, to mention, and I uh, I do a lot of um, lecturing at, at school, uh, whether college or high school, and production classes, and I'm always asked the same question: What's the hardest sport to direct? And it's a no-brainer. It's baseball. And I say to them, nobody comes up with the right answer. And I say, just think about it. Every other major sport is played left to right or right to left. So basically, you are on one camera to document the play, whether it's hockey, whether it's football, whether it's soccer, whether it's whatever it is, but not baseball. Because baseball is the only sport where you are making internal camera cuts in the middle of a play. So, you know, you're on your center field camera for the pitch. You're cutting to your high home camera. If there are runners on base, you're cutting to camera one for the runner rounding second or third. You're cutting back to the outfielder, throwing it in. And now you're cutting maybe to low home for the runner trying to score. So you may have five or six cuts within a single play, whereas you would never do that in football. In football, a quarterback drops back, he throws the ball, or a running back runs the ball. You're on your same camera until the play is over, and now you do your your, uh, close-up cutting and reactions of the offense and the defense. So, yeah, baseball by far, to me, has always been the most difficult. And I applaud every local baseball director who doesn't have the equipment that we did when we were doing the World Series or playoffs. I mean, if I'm working with, you know, 15 to 20 to 30 cameras on a World Series, as opposed to local baseball guys who may be working with five, six, or seven at the most. So I, I applaud those guys. I mean, it's, it's a tough job and to do it every day. Yeah, that's what makes me think about Harry Coyle and how great – he was because he didn't have as many cameras as you have these days, and there's nope. a good chance you could miss something. Uh, in fact, I think, wasn't it pretty lucky that they got the Carlton Fisk reaction because of a, a camera down the left field line uh, that they got that reaction because you, you don't have that many uh, replay machines or cameras? There is a story, and I don't, I think Harry said, well, that's not exactly the way it was, but it was close to that. Apparently, the the camera that was in the scoreboard in Fenway Park, um, and and it, when you look at the replay of that, you see a hesitation. You see the camera; it's it, he, it's on it's on a shot head to toe of Carlton Fisk, and then you see a slight move to get off the shot, and then it snaps back to the same head to uh, uh, head to toe shot of Carlton Fisk. The story goes that the cameraman in the center field. Uh, in the cutout there, that there was a rat inside the scoreboard, and he saw the rat and he froze. And I don't know if it's true or not. It's a great story, but you know. The, and then the other shag camera, I guess, uh, picked it up. But that's why they got the reaction because that cameraman stayed on the shot of Fisk motioning the ball to stay fair uh, when that cameraman was supposed to go with the ball. <laughs> Wow, that's so. You never, you never, you know. never know. I, I hope the story is true. That's, that's a good story. <laughs> you know, your job being a director for so many years—it's uh, so intense. 
when you get done with a game, I can only imagine that your your head is spinning. And and everybody handles that differently. I remember I worked with Chet Forty, and he was a great legendary director. One thing about Chet, though, was that he was yelling and screaming at everybody the whole game. And that's not your style. I've been around you, Bob, no. uh, and I know that you don't yell and scream at people, uh, but it is intense. So over the years, how have you been able to you know fine-tune that? Well, I learned very, very early on uh, to not, you know, uh, conduct yourself that way. I was the, uh, I was the uh, associate director uh, on the NFL Today. It was my first year in, in sports, and um, I was sitting next to the director who was doing it at the time, and we got into a little argument, and our executive producer, Bob Wessler, uh, grabbed both of us by the neck and said, if I ever hear you guys doing this in control room, you're both out of here. So I said, okay. <laughs> then, also, I had been working at, at CBS News before I came over to sports, and I worked on 60 Minutes, where uh, the producer and director, Don Hewitt, and a director named Artie Bloom used to get into it on a regular basis. You know, great, talented people in their own right. But I kind of learned early, and I also just... You know, when you yell and scream at people, you're a you're showing your 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 lack of leadership, and you're also making people nervous. And when you people make people nervous, they can't possibly do the job uh, as well as you expect them to do. So, it's just kind of been my demeanor all through the years. And um, I raise my voice. You know, I have disagreements. I'll yell at somebody for queuing up something wrong, or <laughs> I'll, I'll yell at something in a quiet way if somebody you know blew an assignment. Um, but uh, it's just you know it's the way I learned through the years, and I think those early years in news uh, helped me understand that uh, yelling at people doesn't really do make them better. The personnel at CBS is just outstanding over the years, and you've had a chance to work with great announcers. I mean, Jim Nance for so many years on the Final Four. Uh, now you work on the NFL with Ian Eagle, who's really one of the stars in broadcasting, yep. and uh, of course my favorite, Greg Gumbel, who I work with uh, mm -hmm. every Sunday as a statistician. And you know, one of the things that makes all those guys great is that I think they have their style. They're not putting on some kind of a phony voice. Uh, they are calm under pressure. What do you notice about those three and others that you've worked with that makes them successful? Uh, their, their ability to paint a picture, very much like Scully does in, in baseball. Um, you know, uh, Jim is always got some clever phrase. You know, he works so hard at his craft. Greg has a great sense of humor, which is not like um, he just underlying little things that he can say. And Ian, <laughs> to me, um, you know, his father was a, um, his father was a, a co comedian. And Ian's sense <laughs> of humor and Ian's um, ability, again, to set the scene, uh, his demeanor and his ability to let his partner, you know, shine. I mean, that's the one great thing about Ian um, is, is, never wanting the spotlight, never seizing the spotlight. And he knows he's there um, to do the play and let, you know, Dan Fouts, for example, who I've worked with for many years, um, and this coming season will be Charles Davis. But Ian makes his partner better um, pretty much than anybody I've ever seen. Um, there's a great rapport that he always has, and... Um, yeah, those those three people you mentioned, I, I I love them all. I love working with them all. Um, I don't get to work with Greg now because uh, because he's uh, with with your crew, um, but Jim I do get to work with in in basketball. And and you know Jim also the thing about Jim, 
very much like Ion, and, and in, and in uh, basketball, like during the tournament, we uh, have a three-man booth now um, because, um, you know, well, we have Bill Raftery, who's hysterical, um, and then we have Grant Hill. And now Jim's got to be the traffic cop there. So he has got to defer to both of those guys. And as a traffic cop, he has to make them understand, and I guess they do it through hand signals or what, um, who's going to speak about this, that, and the other thing. Um, and there's great sense of humor with Jim because Raftery brings it out of him uh, on basketball. Um, so everybody's got a different style, but I think for those three in particular that you mentioned, as I think it's their uh, ability to um, not speak when it's the, their partner's turn and to understand the meaning of being a traffic cop. Um, and just their description of everything and their humor. All, all three of them have, in a different way, uh, are pretty pretty funny, or they can be pretty funny. Yeah, and they really know how to capture the emotion. And I know that's really important for you. Maybe the most important thing for a director is to catch the emotion, whether it's the jubilation, because we think about that. I mean, that's the easy part is that, yeah, everybody's celebrating. And what, yeah. about, what about the agony? Because, uh, you know, you have to be sensitive to that as well. Yeah, well, that's the time you probably don't want to say anything, um, you know, and, and they know that. And, and I will, you know, m the producer generally will talk to the talent more than the director, but I'm one of those guys who's pretty active on the uh, on the key, um, on the little toggle switch where I'm able to talk into their headset. And I, it may be one word, and they'll pick up on it, and then... They'll know where I'm going with the picture, and then they'll put the right word to it. But if it's a, a shot of agony, whether it's uh, – I remember from when Houston lost to NC State all the way back in 83 um, when, when – um, you know when Billy Packer was the was the talent on that, and, and actually Gary Bender was the play-by-play -play man way back then. Oh, Jim Valvano taking, game, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Valvano game. But then the other shot was a shot of uh, the Houston player Benny Anders uh, just falling to the ground, pounding his fist. What are you going to say over a shot like that? Yeah, nothing. What 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 could you possibly say that would make that better? Then there was. Um, Denver Ravens playoff game in, in Denver, um, Ray Lewis's last game where, you know, the Ravens have won and he is so emotional and he's laying on the ground. And again, let the picture, it, it goes back to the, you know, the, the Frank Trichinian, um uh, story. What are you going to say to make that picture better? Uh, and, and I think guys who overtalk the moment uh, annoy the audience. We'll continue the conversation with CBS Sports Director Bob Fishman in just a moment. We all know that solar systems make financial sense and environmental sense. And when it comes to choosing the best installation crew in the business, Sun First Solar should be your first choice. Sun First Solar has provided solar excellence since 1984. They are Sun Power Elite Commercial and Elite Residential Installers with a reputation for technical excellence, innovative design, fair pricing, excellent customer service, and end-to-end -end quality and competence. Sun First Solar is a family business devoted to treating their employees, customers, the community, and the environment with respect, and they are devoted to renewable energy and sustainability throughout the Bay Area. There is no roof or project that is too complicated. Sun First has successfully installed solar on Spanish tile roofs, metal roofs, and very steep roofs. They also have extensive experience in solar ground mounts and solar pool heating. Competitive pricing, 
expert consultation, and the best warranty. Go local and get your Sun Power Solar System from Sun First Solar today. Call Sun First Solar at 415-458-5870. That's 415-458-5870. All right, one more Vin Scully call. This one I know is special for you. Uh, so listen in. This was on the radio. Two and two to Harvey Keene. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. Sandy Koufax, perfect game. Now, you are good friends with Sandy Koufax, and I, I always tell this story, Bob, I was playing basketball at the Final Four. There's that day in between, and the production people have a basketball game, and we're playing, and I had no idea. I look over to my right, and there's Sandy Koufax watching us play basketball. Your sons are involved in the game, and he's laughing at me because I'm shooting air balls, and, <laughs> and Sandy Koufax is there. I'm like, why is he there? And I had no idea you have this great friendship with him. Well, it goes back to my, I mean, I idolized him. Um, you know, first of all, as a, a Jewish kid uh, with my parents from Brooklyn, um, listening to him pitch uh, on those shortwave rebroadcasts in the islands. Um, so well, I'll start with a call first. Yeah, that's one of my, my favorite uh, moments of all time with Scully announcing, but the fact that Sandy was uh, through the perfect game. It was 1965, is that right? I think you're right. Uh-huh. It was September. I am in the Virgin Islands, um, ready to go off to college, and I'm sitting in a dentist chair. <laughs> now, now, this is true. The dentist was Danish, and he had no idea what, what was going on, but the, the uh, St. Thomas, the Virgin Islands Network, happened to be bringing in that game that day. As I, as I said before, the, the islands are all about Dodgers and Yankees, and they would uh, bring in as many games as they could on the radio. So <clears throat> I had my little transistor with me, and I had an earpiece in, and he's working on my teeth, and this game is going on. September and, 9, 1965, by the way. Go ahead. <laughs> there you go. Okay. No, my memory's not quite shot yet. So, uh, anyways, I'm listening to the game, and he's trying to get me to put the radio away, but I won't do it, and he's working <laughs> on my teeth, and then he throws, he throws the perfect game. And I got so excited with a, you know, a drill in my mouth, and I'm the transistor in my lap. I, I kind of jumped up. The, the radio falls to the ground, and God knows what happened inside my mouth at that point, but I will never forget that moment as long as I live because the circumstances of being in, in that dentist chair. So um, flash ahead now, um, I did a, uh, for 25 years, I did a charity golf tournament down here in South Florida for the uh, Bone Marrow and Cancer Foundation. And I was at the Final Four in Charlotte, 1993, I believe. And um, I was friendly with the, uh, the former athletic director, Tom Butters, who actually played Sandlot Ball with Sandy, and he knew I was a big Dodger fan. So about a half hour before the game, I go outside to, uh, to the arena and just to say hi to Tom. And Tom says to me, hey, by the way, I've got a friend here you probably want to meet. And he brings me over, and it's Sandy. 
and I shake his hand, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I want to be gushing like a little kid, but I'm trying to be semi-professional about it and tell him what a big fan I was of his and growing up and all that and blah blah blah. And then I say to him, Hey, if you, I know you did some broadcasting, and uh, if you'd like to come in and see what we do in the TV truck, and he says, No, that's really nice of you, but you know, I, I think I'll just stay out here and watch the game. I said, Great, okay. I figure, okay, I've met Sandy. I can die now. My life is complete. <laughs> I, I go in. I, we do the game. And so now that is uh, early April. So my golf tournament is in middle of May. And um, I call Tom Butters and invite him to make sure he's coming. And he says, hey, you know, Sandy lives a couple hours north of you. Why don't you call him up and invite him? I said, come on, Tom, he wouldn't even remember, you know, meeting me. <laughs> so he says, no, I'm telling you, he will, and you should call him and invite him. And so I called him, and he answered, and he remembered, and I said, Sandy, I'm, I know you're busy, and uh, but I do this charity golf tournament, and I would love to invite you to come down. He said, yeah, absolutely, I'll be there. When is it? Like I'm, I'm thinking this is like surreal. I mean, I, this, this, this is not happening. Like one of my two idols growing up is now coming to my golf tournament. <laughs> so, make a long story short, we honor him that day. Everybody is just they can't believe Sandy Koufax is there. So he's our honoree. We do this nice thing. We have this nice luncheon. Uh, he gets up and he. he uh, does a little speech and he thanks everybody and what a great day here's the kicker to this whole thing everybody leaves it's all over and sandy and his wife are there and they said hey can we help you clean up is there anything you know we can help you do and, you know and i'm thinking this this is ridiculous i mean so anyways that's the kind of guy he is and, and since then we have this this relationship and we see each other every now and then um uh, he he has come to many U.S. Open uh, tennis tournaments um, as my guest, uh, big tennis fan, and uh, we've stayed in touch. And in fact, I talked to him last week to see how he was doing. And um, so, yeah, that's that's really really something special in, in my life. And then, of course, Scully. I can get into that story if you like, as well as how I worked with Vin and, and met Vin. I want to hear that. Wait, first of all, was the dental work perfect? <laughs> No, it wasn't actually. This guy turned out to be a fraud. <laughs> I think he left me with 15 cavities in my oh. mouth. <laughs> oh, well, not everything could be perfect on that day, right? Oh, God. Oh, okay. So, wait, before we get to Scully, though, uh, you know, you don't really hear much from Sandy Koufax. He's not in the public eye very often. So, how different is he behind the scenes that we just don't get to see? Oh, he's 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 great, and that whole thing about him being a recluse is just such total nonsense. And I I felt really bad. Um, I kind of think I ruined a final four for him. So a couple of years later, uh, after we had gotten to be uh, friends, um, he was at a final four. I think we were in, in Indianapolis, and it was one of those moments. And I knew where he was sitting, but nobody else really, you know, like the media didn't really know he was there, and um, so. During the game, one of the uh, I think it was a Duke game. One of the uh, one of the guards from Duke throws a great left-handed pass, 
right to the low post, and Duke scores. And Billy Pachter instinctively says, that is one of the great left-handed passes I've ever seen. And I say to myself, perfect moment. I take a shot of Sandy in the stands, <laughs> and Billy says, speaking of great left-handers, <laughs> it was one of those, you know, perfect television moments. <laughs> you know, uh, my camera, one of my camera guys getting the shot so quickly, within three <laughs> seconds, instinctively listening and knowing that's a shot that I would want, taking the shot and getting Billy's comment about it. Unfortunately, now the whole world knows he's there. And for the next half of the game, I think some ESPN camera crew went over into the stands and there, it was like, they shouldn't even been there, but... Um, so I apologized to him after the game was over. I said, I think I just ruined your weekend because everybody everybody knows you're here. <laughs> All right, on to Vince Scully. How, how did you end up working with him? What was that experience like? Well, it was um, 1981. Um, I was doing uh, football. I was assigned to his crew. He was working with George Allen. Um, I did two years with, on football with, with Vin. Um, and we were in – first of all, Listen, working with him was like crazy. I mean, um, here here I am working with my idol growing up, and my my good fortune of, of, of working with him was was crazy. I had been doing the NFL today for the previous four years, and now I was on the road uh, with with the team. It wasn't like one of the top teams at that point because I was not as experienced. But nevertheless, I got to work on his crew, which was great. So this is this is another fun story. Uh, we're in Atlanta um, doing an NFL game, 1981, uh, October, and the Dodgers and Expos are now heading to a Game 5 in the playoff. This was the uh, strike-shortened season in 81. Right. on the way right. to the Dodgers winning the World Series against the Yankees. Correct, yeah. and, and so the Dodgers represented the West, and they had beaten, I think, Houston in the first round, and the Expos had beaten somebody in the first round, maybe the Phillies. Don't, I don't remember who they played, but now they are facing each other for the right to go to the World Series and play the Yankees. Game 5, we're in Atlanta. We fly to LaGuardia in New York, and Vin says to me, Bob, I've got to catch a flight to Montreal. Um, I've got to change terminals. Would you do me a favor? Would you, would you uh, pick up my bag for me, and can you get it to CBS? And if uh, the Dodgers win, have them deliver it to our hotel and if the Dodgers lose Game 5, can they send it back to L.A. for me? I said, yeah, absolutely, no problem. <laughs> so he goes off to catch his uh, Air Canada flight, and I get into a cab. And Vince Scully's got this enormous blue, of course it's Dodger blue, blue bag with a big V.S. initials on it. <laughs> so I get in the cab, and uh, I get to our apartment, and uh, my wife Margaret and I had been um, just married. And uh, <laughs> this is crazy. So I call her, and I said, uh, hey, meet me downstairs. Um, she comes downstairs. I get out of the cab with this big, giant bag, and she says, what's that? I said, this is <laughs> this is Vince Scully's bag. And uh, so, okay, so we go in, and the, and the, we get in the elevator, and it stops on the floor before we get to ours. And for some unknown reason, she trying to embarrass me, says to two strangers in the elevator, 
Do you know whose bag that is? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Wait, it gets better. <laughs> it gets better. So um, I'm like dying, and she says, that's Vin Scully's bag. These people have no idea what she's talking about, who Vin Scully is, and why she was possessed to say that. I have no idea. So now we get up to the apartment, and I put the bag down, and she says, you know, this is your opportunity to open the bag and sleep in his pajamas. Can you imagine what you could tell our children or our grandchildren one day that you slept in Vin Scully's pajamas? Okay. So the Dodgers win the game. I take the bag and I deliver it to his hotel because he's coming back to uh, do the uh, broadcast for KTLA, I think it was, the Yankee-Dodger game. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the Yankee-Dodger Yankee World Series. Um, and uh, so now... Uh, I happened to tell this story uh, the following year at the Sun Bowl, and Pat Hayden was our uh, analyst, and he hears the story, and sure enough, the following year, I'm presented with a pair of pajamas that Pat Hayden got Vin to sign, and uh, it's hanging in my office, (laughs) and it says, sweet dreams to Bob, sweet dreams, Vin. That's awesome. It, it, and it's, a, it's all true. And, and so then the, the next greatest thing, and we stayed in touch through the years, and I went to visit him in the, in the broadcast booth in L.A. a couple of times and was there the year before he retired. I brought Margaret and a couple of friends of ours, and we chatted for 20 minutes before the game, and it was just all so wonderful. So now this past December, when I was so uh, fortunate and, and blessed to be voted into the um, uh, Sports Video Group uh, Sports Hall of Fame, uh, one of our producers, Alana Campbell, who is also a Dodger fan, by the way, <laughs> she lives in New York, and uh, I had asked our uh, management, could you please have Alana do my video um, before the presentation? There's like eight or nine people who are inducted every year. And, uh, so she does the video, and five or six people have their videos and they do their speeches and now it's time for my video and they they roll the video and Vince Scully is narrating the thing. Wow. It just blew me away and I'm like I'm trying to contain myself because I got to give a little exception uh, acceptance speech and there are tears rolling down my eyes. I could not believe Alana tracked him down. They got the Dodgers to send a crew over there to do the introduction video and the voiceover of the whole thing. And so how lucky am I? Kid from the Virgin Islands listening to Scully, listening to Koufax pitch on Armed Forces Radio, um, getting to work with to work with Vin, uh, getting to be friends with Sandy. Uh, it just, it's like a dream. And I, I'm, you know, I've been living this dream for, for many years now. It's just, uh, there's nothing like it in my life. Well, by the way, congratulations on the uh, Sports oh, Broadcasting you. Hall of Fame. That, that has to be quite an honor. That yeah. happened last year, and uh, you know, I, I was very happy for you. Yeah, no, I didn't even want to bring it up because I don't like to talk about it, but it was part of the Scully story, so it kind of went there. And I wanted to ask you about Scully uh, calling football because he called the Dwight Clark catch right. that beat the Cowboys. And a lot of people don't remember that, I, I think. They think of him more as a baseball announcer. But that was another one of the great calls. Great call. I did not do that game. I was uh, the, a couple of more senior production people took over and did the playoffs, so I didn't get a chance to do that game with him. But, yeah, um, it, was, it was a great call. He, but he's one of those guys. He could do anything. You know, he really can. Uh, there, There's a number of people I've worked with through the years as, as broadcasters who can do every sport. You know, Vern Lundquist, Jim Nance, Ian Eagle, 
Greg Gumbel. There, there's so many of them, and certainly Vin is right in there with that group. Um, he's not a one-dimensional guy. You know, I, there are other people in the business who are who just people assume, well, this is the only sport they can do. Uh, but uh, not true. You know, he could do football as well as he did baseball. Because he could paint, because you know, he could paint the scene, he could paint the picture, he could do the description, he could do the setup, he could do the uh, aftermath. You know, uh, that's that's who he is. Yeah, the time off has given us a chance to appreciate great moments in sports. Uh, before we let you go here, Bob, yep. uh, you got uh, baseball. Who knows? Maybe it's on the way. But if it is, the Dodgers have another great chance to get to the World Series again. They haven't been able to put it away here the last couple of times. You could say that the Astros sort of cheated their way to yeah. one of them for sure. Uh, but you must be enjoying this era of Dodgers baseball where they have a chance to win the World Series every year. Oh, yeah, it's been great. I mean, and, and, and last uh the last couple of years, I've uh, been in agony um, trying to listen to a game on my iPad on a flight home after a football game. <laughs> and so what I do now, uh, with, over the last couple of times, they've gone to the World Series, and, uh, and it's a game on a Sunday, and it's like uh, 9 o'clock at night. I, When I get on the plane, I tell the flight attendant, could you please tell the pilot not to give us any, any updates because I'm recording the game at home and I don't want him to ruin the moment. Of course, that didn't work uh, one time. And it, this, this was the crazy game where it was back and forth. This was against the Astros where the Dodgers had the lead and they gave up the lead and you know Kershaw was pitching and he had a bad game. And so the captain keeps giving these updates and now I don't want to hear anymore. So I stick and I hear the intercom, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in the World Series game and I stick my fingers, <clears throat> excuse me, I stick my fingers in my ear and I start going la 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 so I can't, <laughs> so I can't hear anything so I can get home and I tell the driver picking me up from the airport, don't say anything about the World Series, okay, don't say a word. And I get home and I actually get to see it and not have known what happened three hours earlier. <laughs> so yeah, I um, I'm looking forward to the season if if, if it happens. Uh, they have a terrific team, and um, we'll see. But it always makes me nervous if they're going to play a short and eighty game season or less or whatever. How it's all going to work out because uh, nah, you never know. But uh, they got as good a chance as anybody, that's for sure. Yeah, it gives the Giants a much better chance now. So, Bob, we'll be, uh, I'm sure we'll be, <laughs> we'll be texting. I don't texting. think the Giants might have a very good season. <laughs> I don't think so either. But uh, we'll be texting back and forth, I'm sure. Thank you so much for the time. It's always been an honor and a pleasure to work with you. Uh, and everybody at CBS loves you. Uh, it's been such a great career, and I hope it lasts a lot longer. Uh, and we'll talk again down the road. Uh, Joe, this has been um this has been great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I miss working with you. That's CBS Sports Director Bob Fishman. Join us again for another edition of Inside China Basin on the Believe Podcast Network next week. For now, I'm Joe Castellano from thesportsvirus.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.